Welcome to Bonehead. This week's episode is William Malone. William Malone is a filmmaker. He directed things such as the House on Haunted Hill reboot uh, by Dark Castle. Fear.com, Parasomnia, and one of the best Tales from the Crypt episodes ever. As well as an episode of Masters of Horror. Fair Hair Child, which is one of my favorites. Same here. He told some great stories, and I can't thank him enough for coming on the show. He didn't have to. He's probably one of our biggest guests, probably our most, nothing against him, a lot of our other guests, but probably one of our more, more high-profile guests. He also is well-known as being a collector, and we're going to do some episodes about collecting coming up, and he had the world's biggest, at one point, uh, Forbidden Planet collection. Yeah, absolutely. He owned Robbie the Robot, just sold that. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about his films. We're going to talk about his TV work. When he worked at Don Post, he designed a certain mask that you may know from a certain John Carpenter film. He'll talk about that. He'll also tell us about uh, some stories about a certain musical group from England. The so- Beatles, and then some strippers, and then Klaus Kinski. So tune in, watch this, subscribe, and let us know what you think. Here it is. All right, welcome to Bonehead. I'm Joe Lewis. James Thomas. And we're missing somebody today. Who are we missing? Chad. Are we missing him, or is he just not here? Give me that. (laughs) So anyway, our special guest today is Mr. William Malone. How you doing, Bill? You're right there. When we cut all this together, you'll be able to watch it later. <laughs> it's really easy to remember what all you directed because it's right behind you. As far as two of your films, where's the Parasomnia poster? Um, it's actually in the hallway. Actually. Oh, is it? Yes. Or a Titan Finder creature? Do you actually, have a? See, this is all hidden away. See, there's no more. I don't usually have my posters out, so most people don't actually get to see them if they come over to my house because it's like. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Where did you keep Robbie? He was in my, uh, I have a theater in my house, like a little theater, and uh, uh, he was in there for years and years, and, and, you know, I had him for almost 40 years, so. I know, and you had the sled too, right? Yeah, they, they uh, the blueprints called it a Jeep, so that's what I always referred to. Oh, it I'm as. sorry. It was, yeah, it was Robbie's Jeep, but yeah, I had that, that was in my garage for years, and I always had visions of restoring it but I just never got around it's just too many things to do. <laughs> well yeah you had a career but anyway I'm getting off topic and we'll get to Robbie of the Robot in a little while but you've you're a major filmmaker you've made House on Haunted Hill, Fear.com, uh, Parasomnia you worked with Klaus Kinski which we will get to I'd like to in a little while because <laughs> everyone should have a batshit Klaus Kinski story correct? Well, yeah, I mean, you haven't lived till you've worked with Klaus, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whether that be good or bad. <clears throat> so, going ahead and getting started, you were grew up in Michigan. What Did you start making short films when you were a kid? How'd you get into movies? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess like a lot of people, I you know, started making like 8mm movies. I think my parents bought me a... 8 millimeter movie camera when I was probably about 11 or 12. Of course, I didn't have the money for the film processing, so, <laughs> so it was, production was limited. <laughs> <laughs> I know. People don't know how, how good they've got it today, right? It was just, What's that? I said the kids don't know how good they've got it today, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, gosh, if I would have had the stuff available to, that's available to kids now, man, I would have gone crazy. 
you know, because you can do visual effects now, and you know, and I was I was trying to like, you know, I was doing like glass plate stuff, you know, and doing painting. I was I was yeah. trying to recreate Metal Luna, you know, from this island Earth. And, <laughs> and, and I remember taking a little model DC three, you know, and I'd have a little fan, and I'd make the propellers go with the fan, starting up the engines and stuff. <laughs> so, what was some of the movies that were your influence when you were young? Well, I mean, yeah, I guess probably most kids growing up my age, I mean, I, I, you know, I guess the biggest movie that influenced me the most, I guess, was Creature from the Black Lagoon. It wasn't the first horror film I'd seen. My parents took me to see Day the Earth Stood Still yeah. in a, in a, in a drive-in. And I remember I was so young that I wasn't even afraid of the robot or anything. It was just like, I just remember saying, well, this is a big iron guy walking around, you know, um, but my mom, when I was six years old, took me to see Creature from the Black Lagoon, and it scared the bejesus out of me. I remember spending most of the, you know, the movie like this, you know, like that, ducking behind the seats. And um, but you know, there was something about it that really caught my imagination. I guess all the underwater scenes, you know, and, and uh, Julie Adams in her little outfit, you know. <laughs> but you're not the only one. I mean, there's hundreds of directors. I mean. Del Toro just made his love letter to it, right? Right, right, right. I mean, exactly. he, all, he talked about always thinking, why didn't she fall in love with a creature? And he's like, fuck it, I'm going to go make her fall in love with a creature and get a well, nominated yeah, for an Academy well, Award. You know, when, when, you, when you're a kid, it's like, you know, when I was a kid, I, I didn't identify with the heroes, I identified with the monster, you know? And right. The, the monster carried the girl off, you know, and stuff, so... I don't know that it's all kids, though. I think it's kids like us who identify yeah, with a monster. Yeah. And I don't mean to put you in that group, so sorry, but I think it's the odd ones, right? The ones who are probably well, a little bit more hey, creative. I, I, I'll, I'll wear that mantle. You know, I was definitely a weird... Look, I grew up in... My town that I grew up in, Lansing, Michigan, was probably 110,000 people. And out of that, there were literally three kids that were into horror in That's the it? entire city. Yeah. yeah, and you were definitely an oddball if you had a copy of Famous Punch of Filmland, or knew who, or, or knew who Uncle Forey was, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, well, we grew up in rural eastern Kentucky. If that makes you feel any better, so one hundred and ten thousand would would be a huge metropolis. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, what other interests did you have? I know you got you you had your own band. You were into rock and roll. Well, yeah, but before that, I think, uh, you know, it's funny. I was reading um, uh, about Stanley Kubrick, and we have almost exact same background in terms of, you know, his parents bought him a Graflex camera. Well, that's what my, I asked my parents for oh, really? a camera. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I said, I really want a good camera. So I don't know what possessed my mom to do it. She went out and she worked because we were poor. And my, not poor, but we were not, def definitely not uh, rich working middle class right well lower probably lower middle yeah. class and, and and um you know it was hard making ends meet but she went out and saved her money and bought me a four by five graflex camera now if you don't know what that is it's like the old kind with the bellows and mm -hmm. you know i still have it actually here someplace and it's it's got like the flash attachment and the bellows uh -huh. put up, you know right. and uh and the film was so expensive uh, even in the day, it was about 50 cents a shot. Now, back when I was a kid, that was a fortune. So yes. it was actually great training for me because every time you took a picture, 
you had to really think about it. You went, mm -hmm. okay, what do I really like the framing? Is this going to be cool? Mm -hmm. You know, so you, then you take the picture and it was a great training ground really. And even to this day, I just got a digital camera. You just go, bah, bah, bah. Mm -hmm. I still only take maybe a handful of pictures with my digital camera because I still have that mindset. You, know? you, you could, you could probably write a whole book about how that has, how that, change the generation of filmmakers right from you just yeah. shoot 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 today you shoot and you figure and you figure out the movie later on in the editing room correct you just shoot right. a, a shit ton right. of coverage I, I think it, i think it's it was a great training ground for me yeah. i think all people should really start out with film before they shoot digital because you know it does really train your eye to look at composition and, mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff and and I bought books on it and all that stuff when I was 12 years old, you know, so it was uh, it was definitely an interest. And that's what sort of propelled me into filmmaking. So who are some of your influences as far as directors go? When did you kind of figure out what a director was? I'm curious. You know what I mean? That like a director yeah, made, I mean, made I, the movie. I, actually, I don't think I really knew who directors were until, you know, probably I was, uh, uh, you know, 15 or 16 years old or something like that and i knew of course who alfred hitchcock was because he had a regular television oh, show yeah. when he was, I was his a own kid, personality you know? yeah 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 and he was like a personality but you know i didn't know who, uh, you know who directed creature from the black lagoon or you mm. know or uh, any of my favorite films so and the idea of being a director growing up and being a director that was just so alien that just wasn't even a concept yeah well later on who were some of the filmmakers that you do look at and you do admire and that you kind of go well, back and watch their stuff not ones that most people uh you know think about you know That's like great. obviously yeah you know uh, jack arnold influenced me with creature from the black right. lagoon but, but also um you know i guess richard fleischer you know for Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea and mm -hmm. things like that and then uh, but a huge uh, uh, influence was Gerd Oswald, who, he, I don't know if you know who Gerd Oswald is, but he directed probably half of the Outer Limits episodes. Okay, right? okay, yeah. And, and he directed the ones that were really cool and weird. Okay. You know? Yeah. Like, I don't know if you remember the show very well, but there's a, one called uh, um, Corpus Earthling which is a very scary show for a television show, particularly back in that day. Right. And he directed that. But he always had like, he was a um, uh, German expressionist and he grew up with that whole mindset, you know, it had weird angles and, you know, it used wide angle lenses up close and things like that, so. But you're a big fan of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari too, right? Oh, is that yeah, a big influence? Yeah, yeah, you know, you know Cal Caligari's a, a big influence. and But probably, um, F.W. Morneau. Mm -hmm. I, I consider him the greatest director that ever walked the planet. Right. And the reason uh, for it is that when you go back and look at his films, they're so different than anything else that was out at the time. And it wasn't like today where you can look back and, you know, I mean, most directors, you know, upcoming directors basically emulate other directors from movies. Well, yeah. this guy didn't have that. There wasn't any of that stuff to look mm -hmm. at. You know, he was inventing it as he went. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's just amazing. Other than and not, he, I'm sorry, go ahead. I just want to just inject one thing. He made a movie called Sunrise, which is not a horror film, but it's it's got um, some really interesting stuff. He didn't have an extreme wide angle lens, but he saw it in his head what that would look like. So he had the sets constructed 
to look like a wide angle lens, you know? Yeah. And it's just amazing. It just He's got like, you know, the, the sets go back at forced perspective and then he's got stuff tilted at angles and the sets are actually uh, constructed to look like an ex like if you had a 15 millimeter lens or something. I've got to go check it out because, yeah, you know, I've seen, we've seen Nosferatu and, we, you know, we know what he is, but I've never seen it. I need to check it out. Have you ever seen Faust? I've seen parts of Faust. Does, oh, that, does that make genius. sense? I've never actually seen it from beginning to end. Oh, it's genius. Uh, the two You have to see Faust and you have to see uh, uh, Sunrise because they're both just astounding movies just in their uh, uh, the cinematography and the way things are constructed. All right. Well, there's a lot of people who think that cinema died when the picture, when people could talk. Have you heard that yeah, before? Yeah, I mean, there, there was that mentality, you know, and... and in some ways, it did die for a time, and mainly because sound restricted uh, the movement mm -hmm. of cameras, uh, where they had been very fluid before during si silent era, and then suddenly they became very stagnant because they had, because of just physic physicality. So right. Yeah. Um, so you left Michigan. Did you go to just do rock and roll in LA or did you want to do movies or was no, it kind I came of a combination out, actually, of I came out to be in a rock and roll band. I had okay. a band called the plagues in, in right. Michigan and we put out some 45s and we had a mild amount of success and uh, we had a huge fan club and so forth. And I'd come out to Los Angeles and I just couldn't find three other guys who weren't on drugs long enough to show up to rehearsal. So, so I, I gave up on that fairly quickly. So you're the, so you're telling me you're the one who was not on drugs in the band. I was actually, you know, when the hippie movement was going on, I was the weirdo of the hippie movement. If that can be, because I was the guy dressed like John Steed. Right. So it was not sex, <laughs> drugs, and rock and roll for you, huh? It was just the yeah, rock and roll? I, you know, I had long hair, but I had like the, the bowler hat and the suit. <laughs> <laughs> and, so you yeah. had long hair and a suit with a bowler hat. Yeah. <laughs> the Avengers and, would have looked a little different, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, just a tad. The Avengers would have looked a little different. And, and, you know, with a proper English brawly. You know? <laughs> really quick, do you want to tell a? Do you want to tell the story that you and I were talking about right before we started filming about you meeting the Beatles? Well, or is yeah, it something I mean, you've told a lot and you don't want to? I mean, I don't no, want to. I, actually, I don't think I've ever discussed it actually on camera so uh oh um, well then that would be a great one for us but i don't want you to feel like you have to share it with the the hicks from kentucky <laughs> not at all I'm, I'm a hick from michigan so there you go um that's fine in any case um no what happened was uh back in 64 19 uh, february 9th 1964 i was planted in front of the television like everyone else on the planet right. watching Sullivan show Sullivan. and just and um, uh, to give it a little history uh, if you're not of that era what a lot of people don't understand is it was a, from one day to the next it was a different world that's the only way I can explain it um, the next morning after the Ed Sullivan show the only topic of conversation in school including the teachers was the Beatles and the Ed Sullivan show uh -huh. I mean, the entire world had turned, you know, upside down. And suddenly the jocks who were like the big, the big men on campus could not get arrested. They couldn't get a date. Really? Yeah. And, and, uh, 
Um, you know, I went in, I combed my hair down the next morning thinking that, you know, it was going to be a, a, a giggle, you know, and, you know, and of course all the, the jocks, eh, look at you asshole, you know, <laughs> but, hey, and I went, wait a minute, <laughs> this, this is my work for me here. You started getting attention yeah. from the ladies. Exactly. Right. So, uh, but in any case, uh, but so the world changed and, and, uh, for me, uh, you know, I became a huge fan of the Beatles, just really loved their music and stuff. And, I, and, and in September of that year, they had a concert in, uh, at Olympia Stadium in Detroit, and I wanted to go see that concert. Now, I didn't have tickets. I couldn't get tickets. Mm-hmm. But I talked my folks into taking me to, um, uh, to Olympia Stadium, which was about 100 miles away. So it was a good drive. And, uh, good talking, by the way. Yeah, I did some fast talking, I guess. And and I guess what their plan was is they were going to go to some dinner place while I was at the concert, which was great. So anyway, so they dropped me off in front of Olympia Stadium and there was like 15,000 girls, literally 15,000 girls out in front of the stadium mm-hmm. waiting to get in. And I'm looking at them going, I, I got I to gotta get in there somehow, you know? And, and uh, so I went up to this cop who was standing there and I said, and I put on my best British accent. You know, I'm on this band and I'm supposed to play before the Beatles go on, but I don't have any pass because I got my show clothes on. And uh, he looked at me and he went, okay, well, I'll tell you, what, you stay here. I'll be right back. I didn't know what he was doing. He came back with three other cops. They gave me a police escort into Olympia Stadium. Passed all these girls. Girls are screaming. They don't know who I am, but I got a police escort. And I should point out, I was the first kid in my entire city with long hair. And I was wearing one of those jackets like the Beatles wore. Uh-huh. You know, I had the, 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 the collarless jacket. Yeah. Anyway, so they're screaming. They hand me off to this other cop inside Olympia Stadium. It was like a security guy. He takes me through this you know, long route backstage and plants me in this room, which is probably 40 by... 40 or 50 by 30 and uh it's a big white room and i'm standing there and he's got a hold of my arm and he's trying to find somebody who knows what's going on find out if i actually belong there and uh, in the meantime i notice that there's like a big long table and there's a bunch of lights suddenly guys come in they turn the lights on and four guys walk past me and it's the beatles and they sit down not 15 20 feet from me and do a con a press conference and i'm going okay i can die now this is this is it i i i i don't care what happens now anyway so they do a full press conference the thing that impressed me was which i never thought about is that they wore makeup they looked like little dolls because they had like tons of makeup on right. which it never occurred to me that they would do but i guess you know if you're on stage you need in that kind of light anyway um so the uh they're still trying to find somebody who knows what's going on they can't find anybody and now I should I should cut in here at the moment, like a, like a good filmmaker, and say. Meanwhile, <laughs> back at the parents, right, my parents have gone to this place called the Brass Rail in Detroit. What my dad knows, but my mom doesn't, is it's a strip club. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so there, he's taking her downstairs. She's seeing all these pictures on the walls of like naked girls. She's going, what kind of place is this? <laughs> so he gets her down there. They're going to have dinner. 
they, they start bringing out the food. She looks up at the ceiling and happens to notice that the, the paint on the ceiling is rippling and starts dropping down. The place burns to the ground while they're there. So my dad's like, ushers my I mom have to interrupt you for thing. one second. Were the strippers okay? <laughs> well, that's what my dad asked. You know? so, Your dad and I had something in common. Back in to like see if, if the strippers were okay. Do I need to going. grab a couple of strippers on the way out? <laughs> Sorry, go back to your story. I didn't mean to interrupt. Absolutely, that's exactly what happened. So anyway, so my mom anyway. Cut back to me. Uh, uh, so um, the they Beatles finished their press conference. They walk past me. The last guy there is John Lennon. And he looks at me with this cop holding my arm. He goes, so, son, what are you in for? <laughs> you know, and then he, he takes off. And uh, finally, they find this guy who says, what's your name? And I tell him my name. And they go, no, get him out of here. You know. So he literally, like in the movies, throw me into the street. I'm laying on the concrete, on the pavement, on the outside. And I see the two, two feet. And I look up, and it's the cop that I went to originally yeah. and, I, and i figure he's gonna like arrest me or something but he, he looks nice and he just goes i guess they didn't believe you huh? <laughs> so he, he picks me up and, say, and says look if you want to get in there there's scalpers across the street that are selling the 550 tickets for three dollars and fifty cents uh-huh. <laughs> this is what a beetle concert costs back in those days so i, I can't uh, imagine i bought, bought tickets went and, and saw the beatles which was just an amazing it's uh, still people don't understand what that was because it has never been captured correctly it's like it was just you could have turned off every light in the place and it would have been as bright as daylight from the flashbulbs just going right. like that and the screams were so loud you couldn't tell what they were singing it was just it, it was insane anyway uh so i i uh concert's over I walk outside and I'm standing there waiting for my folks to show up. Well, little do I know that the place is burned to the ground. They can't get back to me. So I'm standing out there. This girl, and there's thousands of girls out there. When this girl comes up to me, she says, you look like you're in a band. Would you mind signing an autograph? I said, well, yeah, I've got a little band. So I, I signed an autograph. Well, her friend sees her getting an autograph. And so she comes over. <laughs> Before I know it, it's like I'm pressed against Olympia Stadium, you know, with like, you know, a couple hundred girls, and there suddenly this arm comes in the middle of pulls me out. It's the cop from inside who's not in the best mood, and he arrests me for inciting a riot. <laughs> they they take me down to uh, jail in Detroit, in uh, downtown Detroit. This is a very long story. Anyway. No, no, but, I love it. it. Which I'm sure was a wonderful place to visit, right? Jail. And how oh, old were oh, you? Yeah. One more time. Right, jail. Yeah, it was. It was wonderful. This is yeah, your first time in jail. And how old were you? I was 17. So balls of steel. <laughs> balls. Well, I'm sitting there going, of oh shit! You know, no, no. To fake the thing time. earlier took balls of steel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I did. So, Anyway, so I'm sitting in there, and there's this black guy going, I'm going to kill her, man. I'm going to kill her. You know, <laughs> okay. And um, uh, uh, one of the cops actually came up to me while I'm in jail, you know, with the, just in the cell, going, hey, uh, are you really in a band? Would you sign this for my daughter? <laughs> so, you know, finally, my parents showed up, and they, uh, they, they figured out where I was, and, you know, they were not too happy. Last thing I remember, my dad saying, "Yeah, the kid's got to cut his hair." <laughs> <Which I didn't. laughs> yeah. Well, uh, 
How did they find you? I mean, this is a, because I think some of our audience is skews a little older and then some a little younger. The ones who are a little younger don't understand. There's no cell phones. There's, there's no, no cell phones. there's nothing. no pagers. Actually, there's no. nothing, nothing. Yeah. How did they no, find you in jail? Well, they found me because they, they finally did make it back to Olympia Stadium. And at that point, there was just a few, uh, there was just some guys with a, you know, a dust broom sweeping mm-hmm. up. And uh, they said, have you seen this kid? And they said, what's he look like? And they said, we've got, and he's, it, they said something, well, the guy said something like, uh, uh, was he wearing a wig? Which made my dad very happy. And he said, no, he's not wearing a wig. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they took him down to jail. <laughs> <laughs> so they the words you know, every parent wants to, to hear. hear about their 17 year old <laughs> yeah, yeah after yeah. the strip club burned down it was it was so funny because i it was one of those things that after i told them the story and after what they had been through they i never even got punished for it they were just like <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was about to say because what a night your, your favorite strip club's gone. Your son's arrested. <laughs> That's just one you go home, you sleep on, and you wake up the next day and forget. See, I am I am not a great filmmaker like yourself, but to me, I would have probably rolled with a comedic. I would have cut to you in the back seat, and there's a stripper on each side, <laughs> and, we open, and we cut to your dad, and your dad goes, well, they need a ride home, darling. <laughs> These poor, poor girls. <laughs> They're working their way through school. Working their way through school. <laughs> I'm just saying. It, it, it was definitely a night to remember. Yeah. It, it, it's funny because I remember the next day I went down to the local radio station, which I was friends with, and they didn't believe a word of it. You know, I said, <laughs> hey, go mom, you know. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. So uh, back to it. So we go out. The bands don't oh, work. Oh, you okay? Uh, just a second. Hello. I- I'm doing an interview. I will have to call you. Is it somebody important? Can we say hi? Put him on speakerphone. Put him on speaker. You know, you know what happens sometimes when I teach a class and somebody has their phone goes off. I'll scream out, "Turn off the light and come back to bed." <laughs> so anyway, so you end up out in L.A. and you somehow end up working at Don Post Studio. So I'm assuming that you you had some some special effects mask making experience. Were you a model kit guy or what? Well, how did know, that come about? Um, very, very young when I when I was probably I uh, probably about eleven or twelve. I started making. There was a magazine that came out called Fantastic Monsters of the Films, which was by uh-huh. uh, Paul Blaisdell. His his magazine, Bob Burns. Uh-huh. And he had We've met Bob called, Burns. Uh, yeah, called uh, um, Devil's Workshop, and he's explained how to do stuff. So. I started uh, very young making masks, and um, um, actually, if you hang on two seconds. Sure, right? go ahead. Well, he's gone. He's never coming back. <laughs> he's totally left us. <laughs> Do you see anything that we could reach through the screen and steal? <laughs> that camera looks mighty expensive. Is that a red? <laughs> that, well, I was actually, the, you know, um, what the, the House on Hill poster. I've seen the one that doesn't have the one million dollars each on the top. And it's, I don't think mine is the one million. No, I was going to say. I think that's a. I want to ask him about that when he comes back. Yeah. Oh, sexy. <laughs> there it is. The first it's, mask I ever made. <laughs> that's it. So you've kept it all this time. 
Yes, as you can see, it's falling apart, but it's uh, it's still sort of there anyway. So did you? So that was a pretty. You know, it was obviously the mummy from Abbott and Costello meet the mummy, I guess. Right. But anyway, uh, yeah. So that was you know I started out by making masks and uh, um, and continued actually continued doing that until I got involved in rock and roll. And then when I came back to Los Angeles, I sort of I, I remember actually a friend of mine wanted to do. For Halloween, he wanted to do Pickman's model from uh, Night Gallery. Yeah. So I don't know what possessed me. I said, "Okay, yeah, let's just make it," you know. And I made the whole costume and everything mm -hmm. out of foam rubber, and 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 the, and then just started getting back into it. And uh, so it was kind of a natural talent, something you already had. Yeah. A... Well, I'd been uh, when I was a, when I was really young. You know, uh, unlike today, you can find any kind of toy you want today. When I was a kid. There weren't any science fiction or horror toys. There was just a handful of things, really. Mm -hmm. And so I would ask my parents for clay so I could make my toys, you know, because I'd make yeah. little Frankenstein labs or the fly lab or, right. you know. I even remember borrowing somebody's, like, a, a spark coil from a Model A so I could, like, make, like, my model Frankenstein and stuff. <laughs> that sounds great, yeah. So, uh, but you know, but that that really served me well because of the fact there weren't any toys like that, you know. Right. So, yeah, you know, I don't know how many Robbie the Robots I made or Nautiluses from Twenty Thousand Leagues or, you know, a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. So, how did you get? How did you end up at Don Post? Because, well, for well, like, for some of our audience who don't know, Don Post was like the premier mask place, correct? And they they did right. Halloween yeah. masks, costumes. But well, Don Post Studios really started, I. I think in the late 40s mm -hmm. and uh, was probably uh, the biggest mask company, certainly in the United States up, yeah. up until, you know, uh, very recently. And um, yeah, uh, how I wound up there really was I had, I had become enamored with Robbie the Robot and this is after making the masks and stuff. And I wanted to build a replica, so I started working on a replica. And I remember bringing parts down to Don Post Studios, and they said, "Well, why don't you come work for us?" You know. <laughs> so it just so, happened. Yeah, and I said, "Great!" Because I was unemployed and you know <laughs> borrowing money from my mom and stuff. So, uh, um, you know, so I I got a job there. In fact, I started there the same day uh, Robert Short, Bob Short, uh, started. So we were back in the back room in a painting. 300 line Frankensteins and so forth. <laughs> and uh, and then slowly I started sculpting stuff for the studio and uh, ultimately became uh, vice president of Don Post Studios and, and so forth. And then you left it to, to make films. I left it to make films. I mean, it was really a couple things that were that were going on. It's, um, you know, I was becoming sort of toxic from the chemicals, you know, starting to get like strange rashes and stuff from the, <laughs> the chemicals we were using. Well, and, that and the STDs. <laughs> And uh, what's that? I said that in the STDs. It was a joke. <laughs> yeah. well, there you go. Well, we won't talk about that. Nah, no. VD, what are you going to do? <laughs> it's been, it's been <laughs> but anyway, um, so it was becoming toxic. You were getting sick? I was getting sick off of it. And then also at the same time, I just really had a, a desire to make a film. And I thought, well, you know, the time has come, so I, I left the studio and took my savings and made 
a little movie called Scared to Death. With know. a Sinajur. Am I saying it correctly? Sinjinor. Yes, Sinjinor. I am so sorry. I missed a vowel. Sinjinor. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's a song that goes, Who's creeping under the streets of the city? Everyone knows yeah. it's Sinjinor. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, there's, did you tell us? Did you tell a story about the uh, Hall the Michael Myers Halloween mask? Were you there when it was? Well, I made it. You know, right. I sculpted original, and and um, uh, really, what happened was uh, when I was at Don Post Studios, we had a licensing agreement with Universal Pictures, uh -huh. and that was pretty much all that Don made. And I was very concerned about that. I said, you know, if they pull the plug on you. I just have this feeling they're going to pull a plug on you and you're, you're going to be without any product. Yeah. So I, so I said, so we need to like start coming up with other licensees and, and doing some original. So I sculpted Bob Short and I sculpted a whole bunch of original masks. Plus we started reaching out to other companies for mm -hmm. licenses. One of them, of course, was Star Wars. We got the first license ever on Star Wars. I don't know and that then, I knew that. So I'm yeah, sorry, I didn't actually, interrupt you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, um, and then one of our other things, we had a very good relationship with 20th Century Fox, so we got to license the Planet of the Apes mm -hmm. and uh, and and Star Trek. We actually only wanted Star Trek because we wanted the Gorn and the monsters. Right. And they, they said, "Well, we'll give you license, but you have to make Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock." And we're like, "Oh God, okay." Well, so, I'll, yeah, go ahead. Out of the no, boneheads, he's a huge Trekkie, so he got really excited. Yeah. We all have different things, and this the Trekkie right. isn't so, to the to the left I, of me. I, I totally get it. You yeah. know, so a lot of people love Planet of the Apes. You know, I love Planet um, of the Apes. Yeah, but uh, so uh, I got a hold of uh, I think it was Mike Westmore gave me uh, one of the life casts of Bill Shatner. So I did a clay press and basically sculpted that from sculpted Michael Myers from that and it was like it was in my time there it was a very minor blip you know and uh, you had no you idea know, I had no idea and then I remember John Carpenter came in one day and, and with, with an entourage and they were looking for a mask and they wanted Captain Kirk painted white and uh, the hairspray painted black. It is black, contrary to popular belief. If you look in the movie, it's mostly black, and towards the end, it becomes sort of um, brown, kind of brown, because the because yeah. what they did is in a hurry, they just spray painted the the hair black with black lacquer. Black lacquer doesn't stay in very long. So yeah, so it just started and, coming out, and that's the reason why. Yeah, got... but if you watch, if you really look at the movie, it's black. Yeah. Know? Anyway, so that was that was really the whole genesis of it, and, and to this day I'm haunted. I go places, and there's oh my god, it's Michael Myers. Oh no, it's Captain Kirk. <laughs> but you have no idea. That's just one of those things. Uh, Mick, yeah, right. Mick Strawn is a production designer, and I have no idea if you know him or not. But he worked on a lot of the Nightmare on M Street, Critters too. He worked with Mick Garris quite a bit, and he's been on oh, our yeah. show two or three times. And he's he's a friend of ours. Well, we're friendly, and he talks about all the shit that you just threw out. That would be worth a fortune today. Now yeah. that he's kind of retired, semi-retired, that he could just sell on eBay. Well, you know, at, at one time, you know, when when the uh, carpenter came in and had the Halloween mask, I had the paint department make the next one off the line, an exact replica, which I took home and I had for years and years. And then when they done, Junior begged to have it back to to borrow for something. He said, "You absolutely give it back to me." And of course, I never saw it again. So. <laughs> 
What a rat bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Sold it. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah, absolutely. I was saying it's somewhere in a glass case now on some collector. Yes, good. <laughs> on the black market. Um, so you did Scared to Death. Did you rate, was it completely independent? You went out and raised the money? Yeah, I mortgaged my house, you know, and, and uh, uh, I had another investor who put in like another 10 grand. Two investors actually put in 10,000 each, and then we went off and made the movie and I think the whole movie cost 74,000 and it was uh uh no one was more surprised than I was when it made number 16 on the charts so <laughs> well that was great for such a small film though it's fantastic oh, it was great. yeah we made our money back and we made a little profit and it was it was amazing so yeah yeah so you're why was it so long between that and uh do you want to call it titan fine do you want to call it creature Whatever. I mean, it was it was shot in a Titan Find was the original title, but um, actually, I objected to the title only uh, with the, with the distributing company because I, to me, the creature is the creature from the Black Lagoon, and that yeah, yeah, it annoyed me to have a movie called Creature. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but I understand they just were doing it for you know because they thought it was a more you know, alien creature, you know. Right, so right, right. I get it, but. Um, yeah, there, it was such a long time because actually, um, and even to this day, I've really never been connected heavily with the powers in, in Hollywood. You know, I, I was never one what? of the in crowd. <laughs> and uh, so it was, uh, uh, you know, really it was a long time be between scared to death. And then um, in the meantime, I was like a shooting video camera for Disney cable and things like that, doing cooking shows. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, Which I'm uh, sure that came with a lot of training too, though that made you even better. You you had to work on the fly for TV. I'm sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it was it was it was good, you know. And then um, uh, then a, a friend of mine called me up and says he knew some crazed Israeli who wanted to make <laughs> a, 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 a movie like Alien, and I said, well, I think I could do that. So uh, I met with him, and I painted a little picture. You know, I always thought it was good to have the show and tell. So I right. painted a little uh, piece of artwork, and I took it into him. I said, well, uh, and I said, this is what it's about, and here's how you're going to sell it. And he mm -hmm. went, okay, great, let's make it. So, so uh, you know, we started production on that. That was in, uh, we were making it in, in uh, summer of 1984. Yeah which was the hottest summer in history, I think, in Los Angeles. And, you know, so we were all dying, making it with people yeah. in space and all this stuff. But, um, yeah, so we, we uh, made that. And uh, that film did really well. I mean, it num made number eight in the charts. And actually, it was probably really huge uh, because the per screen average was incredible. And... Uh, to this day, I don't know how much money it made, but it made a lot of money. So. Well, I'm sure you got ripped off. I don't. I don't even need to ask. <laughs> no, I, I, I never saw it. <laughs> I'm sure you got ripped off. I mean, you got, but you did get to work with Klaus Kinski. Do you want to talk about it? I know you probably get asked about that a lot, but it's not every day I get to talk to somebody who worked with the crazy son of a bitch. <laughs> Uh, you're being kind. Well, I, 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 I would love to meet Werner Herzog, and, and I know he probably gets ad, ad nauseum and has no desire to talk about it, but just to, how did you do it? How did you get through the day? Because I love the idea of him, of Werner being behind the camera holding a pistol, because I know that's one of those uh, you know, I, 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 supposedly... I said, uh, 
I remember at one point I said, you know, I know Herzog pulled a gun on you. I said, if you don't shape up, I'm going to pull a gun. So, yeah. <laughs> but, Although uh, I've seen Werner deny it, but everyone says it's true. So I, I want to live in a world where it is true, where the director has a gun pointed at his star. <laughs> but I wouldn't doubt it, really. Yeah. But, so, no, anyway. I mean, Klaus, you know, uh, you know, once again, this crazed Israeli uh, two weeks before shooting, said, oh, by the way, I hired Klaus Kinski to be in your movie. Now, I had known, I had heard the rumors already that he was like a madman. Uh -huh. and so, and I said, well, I said, uh, Moshe, I said, there's no part for for Klaus in the movie. We make make part for him. <laughs> <laughs> so I quickly wrote a part for him and... Um, and I thought, well, if he's crazy, I might as well write him in as this crazy guy. So I wrote him as a sort of madman. And of course, he showed up and he was 10 times crazier than the part I wrote. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, the first words to me, we were walking out on the spaceship set and he put his arm around me. He goes, Bill, when Natasha was 12, I raped her. <laughs> and I, 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 you know, I, my brain must have just spun in my head, you know. I didn't even know where to go from there. And, and then things went downhill from there. I mean, Klaus was a despicable human being. He really right. was. And I mean, one, I'll, I'll give you an example. Yeah, he, first of all, he'd want to have an argument between every take, every time the camera shut off. And I got so, I was just telling him, I said, we're just going to go from one take to the next. I don't even turn the camera off, just roll it. You yeah. Because uh, otherwise we'd be dead. Um, but I mean, you know, he... Uh, one time we were having a uh, luncheon just during shooting and we were at this fairly shishi place in Beverly Hills and Klaus showed up and he had a girl that I swear if she was 15, I'd be surprised, uh -huh. you know, and she went up to go to the restroom and I, I said, Klaus, where did you get her? He goes, oh, I hang around the schoolyards. And I'm like, oh, man, and I knew the way he said it, he was telling me the truth, you know. Uh, our producer, yeah. uh, our director, producer Haley, just did this, and <laughs> the camera <laughs> leans over. I wish you could have seen it. She, she, she. We're educating her as we go. I will make sure to show you Fitzcarl, Fitzcarl though, and uh, let's see, Geary, oh, yeah. Breath of God. We'll, we'll watch Geary, some. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, look, he, he when he was on camera, he lit up the screen. There's no question. Right he now, was, he is. He's a presence. But you know. Klaus is dead now, and the world's a better place for him. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but yeah, that's, he's just a horrible human being. Imagine him being alive in today's time. Oh, it, with all the with specifically of all the things that happened in the last six months, with all the things that came oh, out. Imagine yeah, the crap I, I, that would come out about him. Oh yeah, I mean you know, I mean if you just, I, I, I'm surprised he wasn't arrested even back then. I mean the stuff yeah. he was up to. So. Yeah. All right. So uh, you, after that, was it Freddy's Nightmares or you started working in well, television yeah, quite a bit? I, I uh, once again, have not being very well connected. And I, I really, looking back on it, I mean, I should have just been like, been launched into, you know, filmmaking because, uh, you know, the creature did really, really well. But, but you know, not being well connected, as I said, I just... Uh, uh, you know, kicked around, went to studied film at UCLA and wound up uh, meeting a guy who wound up working on a show called Freddy's Nightmares. And he called me up and he said, you, you're the guy who should be doing this. And so uh, so I went down there and, and started directing those, which were, they ran at like two o'clock in the morning mm -hmm. or something. And, and they were our shows shot in about five, four and a half to five days. So mm -hmm. that was just a 
brutal schedule. But I really enjoyed it because it was um, it was so you had to be so fast on your feet that it really you know made you very uh, uh, very keen on getting things together and, and being really ripe for that sort of thing. So so it really was a good it was a good thing and and the the uh, producers didn't care about the show. Uh, all they wanted to know is that you came in on time and on budget, so on you budget. could do anything you wanted to do. So, I, you know, I pulled out every harebrained idea that I had and tried it out on Freddy's Nightmares. So, but it was great, so, you know. So I'm curious, you went to film school after you did Creature? Yeah. Uh, mainly usually they felt... go, usually, usually what I've heard is that you go to film school <laughs> and then you go out and make the movie. Yeah, I, now, I we're rejects. <laughs> we both work at the University of Kentucky, but we both would have liked to have went to film school. Didn't happen. However, usually you go there and then make the movie. Now, explain that to me. I've got to stop you. You've got to explain <laughs> that. Well, basically, I knew, I felt like I knew cinematography and art direction and that stuff. Yeah. But I really felt that I needed more tools to work with actors and so forth. So that, makes sense. that was really the, the main reason that I went, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so I, I took a lot of classes in uh, uh, directing from guys like Ted Post and, and Gil, uh, um, uh, uh, Gil Cates, who was later the, president of the director's guild okay it's great great classes you know and uh really uh i learned a lot from that and it's funny you know when i started out uh my goals changed drastically i started out, all i wanted to do when i started was just if i could make a monster movie once a year i'd be happy well of course that you can't do that anyway because there's never enough money to do that yeah. but um but then later on i sort of became more and more enamored with guys like fw Mornow mm-hmm. and and, and really the fine art of filmmaking. And, and so I really wanted to sort of head in that direction. And um, so that's really where things ha- uh, went, you know, and, and I did, uh, like I said, Freddy's Nightmares. And I got a chance to do a show called uh, Dark Justice, which was, we called Just Darkness. Cause mm-hmm. it, again, it was an hour show, action show shot in four and a half, five days. Yeah. Some episodes were four and a half, some were five anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, uh, that was good. I actually, I worked with Bruce Abbott on that show. I saw and, that. I saw that Bruce Abbott was in from a reanimator. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I felt sorry for Bruce because he's a really excellent actor. And we, if we got any, if he got anywhere near the lines, we just go cut print moving on. <laughs> right. So, uh, but it was a it was a good uh, experience, and then on that show uh, there was uh, on Freddy's actually there was a guy named Gil Adler who was uh, who later went on to produce uh, Tales from the Crypt, Crypt. Mm-hmm. and so some was now three years later um, I bump into Gil and he'd been now been on Crypt for I don't know four five seasons, and um, he. Uh, invited me to come and do an episode and they they sent me a script called only skin deep mm-hmm. and uh by that time i'd been studying so hard i felt like i was a racehorse that was like out in the pasture somewhere you know and uh they gave me the script and i, and I was just like uh, from god you know i read the script and i said oh god i this is like the perfect script for me i know exactly how to do this so i did this episode and um uh, turned in the, the the show, and I got this call from Joel Silver, 
screaming at me to come into the office. So I figured that I was in deep shit and they were yeah. going to fire me. And, and then he went off on me and apparently he went off on me in a good way. He said that, you know, it was the best show and Bob Zemeckis said it's the best crypt episode ever done. And I went, thank God, you know, so, uh, and suddenly I had agents coming out of my butt, you know, and it was, <laughs> Uh, but so it wasn't until you did Only Skin Deep, though, that you got a lot of recognition. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. that was the sort of thing that sort of uh, propelled me into, uh, you know, doing bigger things. When we were preparing for this, because I, we're, we're fans and we're, we'll get to the movie, the House on Haunted Hill later on. But I was I rewatched both of the Crypt episodes. I hadn't seen them in a long time. And it had been a really long time, to be quite honest. And and I realized um, a lot of your, most of what I would see later on, your visuals are there. That, you know, the shaky kind of, I don't know well, what you was, call that. Yeah, that was still, still starting to experiment. Right. With it. In fact, I had done tests maybe a couple of years earlier with a friend of mine at my house. And I had set up lights and we were shooting uh -huh. variable frame rates and stuff like right. that. Because I wanted to experiment with it. So a lot of the cool shots, the, the leading up to the bed at low angles, all that, I mean, things that we would see later, it was right there. And then it was also in the next episode as well, even more so, yeah. which was shot in, in England, correct? The whole season was right. done in England? Right. And then that's when I started experimenting with the idea that if somebody did their action super slow and then we shot it at like four frames a second, that it would be an interesting thing which was just one of the things i used in that the episode in england mm -hmm. report, and, uh, is it from the grave so, yeah report from the grave yeah. yeah which wasn't really a good show it, it had problems of, and, and i really have to take responsibility for that it was because i i had written the script excuse me that was basically a uh, a feature film and it just trying to chop it down into a half hour just didn't work so yeah dick bb wrote the other one correct Correct. And yeah. is that how you get? Is that how you both ended up working on um, House on Haunted Hill? Yes. Yeah. Later on, uh, uh, a few years later, uh, after I did a, another thing for uh, a couple other things for uh, uh, um, the Dark Castle gang, based basically before they became Dark Castle. Yeah. Is um, uh, they asked me who uh, they wanted me to develop House on Haunted Hill. Uh -huh. as as a feature film and they asked me if i was be interested i said yes i think ghosts are going to come back really hot and heavy and mm -hmm. i said i want to make the first ghost movie yeah you know and, and uh so they said well um who do you want to write it and i said well why don't we get Dick baby because he did a really good job on my crypt episode so uh that was good and bad uh dick unfortunately had a little problem with the with the drink but he's in the movie though correct he's in he's in the opening he's scene the with movie. the pencil sharpening correct yeah he's the guy who gets the pencils through the yeah neck. yeah 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 uh, but dick uh, um spent probably about four months writing a screenplay and um, we actually everyone after we read it said he wrote this like two to, uh, like last night yeah. you know because that's how it looked. It just was not good. Nobody liked it. The studio was going to pull the plug. And I, I told him, I said, look, give, give me a chance to work with Dick. And so I, I got Dick and I said, let's watch the original movie again. Let's watch the Vincent Price movie and, and write down everything we like about that movie and let's put it in the script. And uh, that's what we did. So I said, let's, we'll try and figure out a way of making it our own, but let's, let's keep as much of the original as possible. So did you sober him up? 
or just kind of watch over him as you went through yeah, the process? Yeah, I just watched over him, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, and he was sort of, at that point, I was like on him all the time, so right. he had much chance to, and also I did, I wrote half the script. I mean, I didn't get credit for it, but I wrote, I basically wrote, assembled the plot and I, I wrote all the scary scenes and Dick wrote sequences that were basically the, a lot of the character stuff, you know, uh -huh. the interaction between, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the Vincent Price character and his wife, um, you know, Evelyn, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and um, so I wrote that. I wrote the whole, the opening sequence and the stuff with the roller coaster. That's all. Actually, the roller coaster stuff is from when I worked at Don Post Studios. I used to go to uh, these, uh, we used to go to amusement parks because we sold a lot of masked amusement right. parks. I remember seeing the rise and I'm like, these aren't scary. There should be the imminent threat of death. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, you know, so that was my idea for the theme park, you know. So I actually had a couple other, there was, was the roller coaster, which is the one you saw in the movie. But I also had a, developed a, uh, a thing called Walk the Plank, which was uh, a ride where you had to walk out on the plank that was like a hundred feet across and uh -huh. like this narrow. And all that was below you was just a big black chasm. <laughs> And what it was, it was like 200 feet tall, and it was a giant funnel. And basically, at some point, they would throw the thing, and you'd go off. And basically, you'd fall free flight, and then slowly hit the side. And it would be so gradual that eventually, you'd just come out the, the other end. No, I'm, ne I'm never riding up. anything you design. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> That's the, the, I, I, two out of the three boneheads are scared shitless of roller coasters. The two here... the. <laughs> The third, the idiot who would ride that, <laughs> is sick tonight. So when we made that movie, right out our window, we could see Six Flags. Right? Yes. And they wouldn't let us shoot the roller coaster scene there because they didn't want to portray roller coasters that way. We had to fly all the way to to uh, uh, Universal in Florida. Oh, really? Universal was the only place that would let us do that. Is that the Hulk ride at Universal? Yeah. I didn't yeah. know that, but now that you said Universal, I, I, I yeah, that... that that looks like the Hulk ride, yeah. yeah and actually, for I think probably for a couple of years afterwards, they still had the the prop stuff that we left there from the. <laughs> That's great. Um, <laughs> so, you you wrote a lot of it. Once again, actually, when you were telling me that, I was thinking about the screenwriter uh, screenwriting guild, and oh, look at me! I wrote forty nine percent of a movie that I'll never get credit for, right? Well, actually, I probably wrote more than that. I could I could have. I probably could have filed a, you know, mm -hmm. a thing with the Writers Guild, but I was trying to be a, a you know team player, and I figured if they took my name off of it, that it was probably because of some deal that they had made, and you know, and I didn't want to get in the middle of it. I said, okay, fine. Yeah. So, so why didn't you do thirteen? If you find early copies, you'll find early copies on the uh, on the internet of, of the film, pretty much the way it is. That's got my name on it. So. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. By the yeah. way, James, when you got up to leave earlier, James, and you you actually signed my house on Haunted Hill poster, but mine doesn't have the million dollars each on it. Yeah, what? you know, I was wondering. I don't think anybody won that. I think that was a scam. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. It, but yeah, I'm sure it was. But it. What, so, how many of those were actually made? As opposed to, I was wondering when you came to, because I, as you can see, I collect one sheets. I have, I have over three or four hundred. So I was kind of curious. Yeah, this, I guess this is the standard one, the one I've got in the back. Oh, but I have, I, 
have the uh, one that's got the million dollar poster thing. Uh-huh. I, I, I think they probably only made maybe a couple hundred of those. Yeah. <clears throat> that was yeah. like an early release poster. Yeah. Okay. Well, remind me and I'll steal that sometime. <laughs> <eventually>. <laughs> I'm joking. So why didn't you direct 13 Ghosts? Because that House on Haunted Hill, is that probably, is that your biggest hit? Yeah, I mean, that was my, financially, that certainly was my biggest Right, hit. right, well, yeah. I'm not sure what Creature did, you know. Yeah. Creature, I say, was very successful. But, I mean, it had the same screen average as Star Wars, so I don't know how much money they made, but, yeah. you know. Once again, you didn't see any of it, right? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, that movie, I think uh, uh, they, it did... 40 million in the U.S. I think it did like 120 worldwide all totals. So yeah. Like that. So it's a big it was, hit. So I would imagine they wanted you back for 13 Ghosts. The next the next Dark Castle film. That was because, yeah, uh, I, you know, I'll... I know the answer to this, by the way. I know he told me the answer to this two years ago. You don't remember telling me the answer, but I'm putting you on the spot. It's it's so egregious that making House on Haunted Hill was such a a difficult thing. Yeah. Working a a certain person who will go unnamed. (laughs) So you don't want me to say it? Uh, But his initials are Joel Silver. (laughs) Right, 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 right. And CC told me a story about the Wachowskis actually moving the production of the Matrix sequels out of the country. So, right? So they wouldn't have to deal I, with Joel. Actually, I know they had a guy who was, his entire job was just to keep Joel away from him. So. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to hear that he's that huge of a bastard. I've never met him, so I don't know. Yeah. 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 Well, he's, he's, he's not known as being, I think he actually revels in being a bad guy, so. He wouldn't be the only one, right? Of famous Hollywood producers who revel in being the bad guy. That's yeah. a long list. That's a stereotypical list, right? Okay. So how did you end up doing Fear.com? Um, well, once again, Moshe, some <laughs> creature, called me up and said, I want Bill, I want to make a movie. You know, we're going to shoot in Luxembourg. It'll be just like New York. <laughs> 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 I'll keep that in mind for so my it was vacation. The same, it was the same producer on on Fear.com. Yes, yeah. I didn't know yeah. that. I must have missed that yeah. when I was researching. I'm so sorry about that. Yeah. I yeah. usually catch that stuff. Yeah. Anyway, so, uh, so you know, he had this idea for a, a story that he wanted to do, which was about a, uh, you know, a ghost inhabiting a computer. And I thought, well, okay, that's an interesting idea. Unfortunately, what happened with Fear.com was... Uh, um, <clears throat> A whole. Sometimes you know when you make a movie, wonderful things happen. Like everything falls in place. That's happened to me a couple times. One was on the Tales from the Crypt episode, and then one was on Masters of Horror. Um, but the, sometimes the opposite happens, yeah. and unfortunately, Fear.com was a case of the all the all the forces of. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we'll talk. We're going to get to it. I promise. Unless you're in a hurry, we're going to get to it. All the forces conspiring against that film. Yeah. And one of them, which was the Screen Actors Guild, was going to have a strike. Yeah. And that forced the production into overdrive to get it done before the Screen Actors Guild went on strike. Uh-huh. And it was a huge mistake. And actually, at at times, I thought of quitting the production before the film got made. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just not in my nature to be a quitter. I pro- and I should have been because it actually uh, was not 
boding well, you know, because we didn't have the time to properly do the screenplay. Yeah. And it was just a lot of elements that I just felt like, you know, uh, that just weren't falling into place. That said, I got one of the best DPs, I think, that ever, you know, walked the planet in modern times. And um, the, the film has gotten uh, a reputation. There was one website that was a cinematography website called it the most beautiful shot film shot in recent history. I, know, I so. totally agree. And the one compliment I want to give you, it, it, I, and I think it's nothing against you. I, I, Stephen Dorff may be a wonderful human being. I've never met the man, but I don't know what it is about Stephen Dorff that I just, they make fun of me all the time. It's like Dave Poulier <laughs> and Stephen Dorff could fall off the planet tomorrow. And I like most people, and I've never met Stephen Dorff. Um, so you can tell me he's a horrible person, which would just reinforce <laughs> what well, I already... Actually, actually, Stephen's a nice guy. See? <laughs> Damn it. I just, I just don't like a guy for no reason. You, but should like Stephen... you should like him from, uh, you know, uh, the, the movie he did in Canada when he was a kid. What's the name of it? The, uh... Uh, oh, uh... No, I don't know. I don't... Oh, I don't. I don't even. I don't even like him in Blade. I don't. I don't know why. I, I can't tell you. He's the little kid and get the gate. Get the. I don't think I've ever seen it. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, back to what I was saying. You do have Stephen Ray in there, and I'm a big fan of Stephen Ray. And what you're going to tell me is that Stephen Ray's the dick. <laughs> Stephen Ray is a lovely guy. Okay. He, good. 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 Yeah, and, and we used to have very very interesting conversations because because you know he's very IRA. I don't know if you know. Uh, Irish Republican yeah. Army, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's very much pro IRA. Oh, I did and, not know that. Yes, and we used to have really interesting because you know, because I don't really have a perspective on it one way or another. So we used to have some really interesting. And I'm a big collector of British cars, uh -huh. and of course, you know, one of the marks that I like is I like old Rolls Royces, the old ones. Uh huh. The new ones I don't care about. But we had a big conversation about, you know, how that was the epitome of, you know, <laughs> British imperialism. And I said, I said, well, who do you think makes these? The working class guys make these cars. It's not like, yeah, you know, yeah. you don't see any lords or ladies making those cars. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly enough, I didn't have an opinion about that, too. Our boss is Irish and has taught me a lot of it. I mean, she's off the boat, immigrated here. But anyway, back to Fear.com is is one of, is probably the most beautiful one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen straight up I'm, I really well, I thought that because I, I saw it in the theater because we are fans and I thought I don't know that it works for me but it is a beautiful beautiful movie well, every I, frame I of it Christian, every I frame Christian about that because Christian and I worked very hard on that film in terms of try, trying to make it something uh, unique and 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 something. So. We would love to have him on the show. That would be great. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm sure he'd be happy to talk about it. Because, we, uh, we 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 love talking to uh, production people. Of course, we'd also like to have Jeffrey Combs, but you know he's a uh, B movie huge person, so they don't always want to come on our little <laughs> shitty YouTube podcast show. Um, but no, it's a beautiful film. Every frame of it is just beautiful. Yeah, he did. He did an amazing job with it, and, and uh, we worked very hard together on that to make it. So, Christian, Christian, uh, I really think the world of him uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, he's like he's a great artist, but he also we have a really interesting relationship, which is like if I go on the set and go, Christian, we really need that 10k. Can we turn that one off? He'll go, okay, and he'll turn it off, and then he'll come to me while we're shooting and go. 
think that performance was good, you know. <laughs> right? Let's, you know. So we have a really that's great uh, give and take on it, which uh, you know it's hard to find in somebody, you know. So. Yeah. And so, he doesn't get offended if I like say something about you know, <laughs> some framing or something that he's doing. So, so why didn't? Why, and, and this is and this may be. I it's a kind of a two parter, and I feel like I've taken everything no, from no, James, but. Um, why do you think you weren't a Hollywood inside guy? What do you are you not a party goer or just not out and about I, I just, or mingling? I've or... never been good at like hanging out, you know. <clears throat> I've been, actually just been too much into just working on stuff, you know, and and doing experiments. And most of my time's taken up with experimenting with, you know, even to this day, I you know, you know. Uh, you know, I just went out and bought myself a proper proper cinema camera, you know, right. so I can uh, shoot some more tests and stuff. And it's, it's just what I do. It's uh, and it takes a lot of time. I uh, takes a lot of time to do that stuff. So it's you know I always feel like people are just sitting around, you know, you know having lunch, which is probably what I should be doing. But <laughs> yeah, right. So the next thing was it Paris Omnia? You did was that that was the next movie? Well, the next thing really was was uh, uh, Masters of Horror. Okay, so let's talk about this because Although I was writing. I was writing. I should Paris. I was writing Paris Omnia while I was making Masters of Horror. Th this uh, is one of my f favorite. I think we both. I don't. I, I actually hadn't didn't ask James. This is one of our favorite Masters of Horror. And it's the reason why I have the I had like the house on Haunted Hill, but I actually decided to pull this out to show you. And not only that, I, it may be my favorite thing you've done. Oh, thank you, thank you. And yeah, it's just because I just think it works on every level. Um, specifically well, now, I, I, look, I have Mick Garris to thank for the fact that he, you know, had me on on the show, but right. also that he set up a situation where the directors could do what they wanted to do. Because most of the time you don't get to do what you want to do. You, you do what's, what's uh, convenient or what's going to make the, you know, the, the money guys happy or whatever. Right. And that, was, that wasn't the case with the show. The, the, the directors had the opportunity to, to, to shoot whatever they wanted to shoot as long as they once again came on time on a budget. So it was a, it was a great opportunity. And, and, uh, and Mick made that possible. So. Yeah, well, you can go ahead and get him to do Bonehead. That'd be great. He, he is. He is. He has told me no. <laughs> but I, he was not. But by the way, I appreciate him being honest and telling me no, as opposed to ignoring me. <laughs> I I like well, the no know, better than things, ignoring see, one me. I, here's one, one of the reasons I'm not that I didn't have a, a a more industrious career is because. I was stupid. I didn't realize you're supposed to tell everybody yes. And right. Then just not do it. <laughs> and just not do it? <laughs> yeah. Which apparently is what you're supposed to do. And so that happened. Safety tip to filmmakers in the future just say yes. Whatever they want you to do, just say yes. <laughs> And then just go do what you want to do. Go do, I've heard that before. Or if you're doing small shows, we have been told yes by people and they just not return our messages <laughs> or phone calls or anything. So, But we've gotten used to it. Anyway, uh, this, uh, really quick, this, Cigarette Burns and... Um, pick Me Up? Uh, pick Me Up's good, but I, I like Incident On and Off a Mountain Road. Which is that's uh, very good. I also like uh, Stuart Gordon's second, the the, the Poe one. Oh yes, oh yeah, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. With Jeffrey Combs, I love yeah. that one. J yeah. James, we're both. I think Stuart, 
yeah. was really, really excellent. Yeah, you know that one's good too. You're absolutely right. Well, I was about to say, and I think one thing about Masters of Horror, and I'm glad to know that it came out of you being able to do what you want, because to me, that was the last of event TV. Like when that show was on, I and I I paid for Stars. We all and everybody came to my apartment was to it watch Showtime? it. No, it was it wasn't it was Stars or was it Showtime? I guess it was Showtime. 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 I'm sorry, I said Stars. Yeah. I paid for it because everybody came to. Of course, this you know how your friends are, right? There's one that pays for everything, and everyone else shows up. I'm the fat bastard who's paying for everything. Anyway. I didn't want you to be alone. Uh, <laughs> and everybody came to my apartment but, to watch it. But I mean, it was event TV. It was like you got your own movie. Yeah. Every Sunday night or whenever it was on. Yeah, when, yeah, yeah. And and I I mean we watched it because it was. It wasn't going to be the same thing we saw 15 times. It wasn't going to be, oh, this is going to be the same vision of this. It's not going to be the same characters. But you're going to walk away going, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is different. We This was good. Well, you know, I, I loved it because it was an anthology. Because right. you know, it's like, that means that each show is unique. And, uh, <clears throat> and because the directors got to do whatever they want, if you really want to know what a director's sensibilities are, there it is. Yeah, because I think it encapsulates everything that I'd seen you had done up to that point. It has your visual style, and it, because you have a beautiful visual style, it has your eye, it has your sensibilities, it has, it just, it. You, I can look at that and say, yep, there's Bill Malone, William Malone directed that, right? I can say, oh, John Carpenter, that definitely, that talking rat is Stuart Gordon. Does that, <laughs> I think it's in the first one, yeah, right? It's, it's in the first one. season. That's Stuart Gordon. Yeah, you, yeah, I totally understand. Uh, it's sad that they ended up going for the third season and became Fear Itself on NBC. And, of course, that I have no idea who thought that was a good idea. Well, uh, you know, look, I, I think it was just a, a way of keeping the show alive. I think Mick had, didn't really have any choice. Yeah. What happened is right at that time, Showtime's changed hands. Oh, okay. So, and that's what, that's what killed the, the show because the, the next people who came in didn't want to have anything to do with it, so yeah. You know. But I think the I think it left kind of a permanent mark because there were the unofficial, not really spinoffs, but there were the Masters of Science Fiction for a while that right. adapted some Harlan Ellison, and I think Stephen Hawking actually was the quote unquote host of an episode, or mm. and, and so I, I. But the impact that it still has, and and I can pick these up and I can show them to people. And they're like, oh, this is great. Where did this come from? And I'm like, oh, it's a show. Yeah. And so, yeah. It, it, um, yeah, no, I just absolutely adored Masters of Horror. We well, probably should stop kissing your ass about Masters of Horror and move on. I'd talk about Parasomnia. How did that come about? Because you financed it yourself. Once again, sir, Balls of Steel. And you don't, you don't remember telling me this, but you when you were there showing it, it was a it was a, it was a pack that weekend because Clive Barker was there and there were some other people. Right, I, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, and he was sick. I later, I, if we ever talk again, let me tell you a Clive Barker story. I don't. <laughs> are you friendly with him? Do you know him at all? Yeah, yeah, actually, no, no Clive. Okay, yeah. my wife. I'll tell you a story about my wife telling him a dirty joke later and him laughing his ass off. And he was so sick that weekend. I don't even know why he was there. Yeah, I remember. I, I remember. I, I ran into him in the, the elevator, and he was so sick. He was like keeled over practically. So. Yeah, yeah, he was bad. And there was somebody in front of us. Even though he was so sick, someone in front of us had a had a bust of Pinhead, and he he actually got up and started taking his pants down, pantomiming Pinhead blowing him <laughs> in front of the rest <laughs> of the audience. 
but he was a blast. Anyway, you were telling me that you find it, you you find you basically took a mortgage out on your house, right? To do parasol. I did actually. In fact, I just paid it off just uh, last month. We'll get to Robbie in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I can see the connections. Robbie paid off parasol. Yeah. So uh, yeah, no. Look, I, I, you know, I've never been afraid to fail. I, I think that if you uh, and and, and Parasomnia was not a failure, but it, and financially it was not a success. Uh, but um, to me, you're not doing your best work unless you're like right on the edge of disaster. Yeah, I think that's how you have to look at it. So, uh, and I've never been afraid of like you know risking stuff to do to do things that I like. And Parasomnia was <clears throat> just a project that I really wanted to do because I really felt that it was a kind of movie that audience hadn't seen for me. And I thought it was something that I wanted to show and just say, this is, this is more of, you know, what, I, what I'm doing. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, mortgaged my house and got a bunch of, and a friend of mine had been bugging me for a long time to put money into a movie. And uh, I'm sure he regretted it, <laughs> but, but um, it, you know, I'm really glad I made Parasomnia and it really, it, uh, I, I'm very proud of it actually. So it's a beautiful, it's once again, a beautiful film. I, I but it, it, I think it just is another one of those of finding its audience. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that probably, uh, you know, uh, nothing bad about the cast. We had, a, I think we had a wonderful cast. Uh, but I think that had, I had major stars in it you know, and a studio releasing, I think it would have been a big hit. Yeah. You know, it's just, it just, you know, uh, and also it came out exactly at the wrong time because it was at a time when the business was changing drastically. And, and uh, when we started making the movie, the, the common belief was if you made a movie for under a million dollars, you pretty much were guaranteed that you'd make your money back. On DVD sales? Back and make a, a small profit. Well, during the time that it took to make the movie, which was two and a half years we spent, because we spent like a year and a half doing the visual effects, uh -huh. you know. And so you did a lot of them, time, right? What's you, that? You did a lot of those visual effects, correct? I, I did about half of the shots, yeah. 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 And uh, during that time, um, you know, the business completely changed, you know, whereas by the time we got done, they would nobody give any movies advances. They wouldn't, and they wouldn't even... <clears throat> the, the thing which I think unfortunately still holds up today is just give us your movie. No, yeah. we're not going to give you any money back. Just give it to us. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. Fact, because... I had a distributor tell me basically that. And I said, I'll tell you what, let's go down to the Rolls Royce dealer. If he'll give me the Rolls Royce with the same idea, I'm good. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because, well, the business has changed so much. I, I've heard Joe Dante talk about this. It, it's not, they used to pay you to develop things. Right. right. You can make a lot of money. I, I, uh, I interviewed Romero a few years ago. I, I moderate conventions and he was on a panel. He was talking to me. He made more money when he wasn't making movies in the late 80s oh, yeah. and the well, 90s. I, I spent five years making, doing development at, uh, at Hemdale. Yeah. We used to call it, we used to call it Hemlock uh -huh. because, you know, because they pay you, but nothing, nothing ever got made. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. But he was talking about he made more money then than he ever did in any other time of his career, and he didn't make any movies. It was just right. from development deals. Yeah. 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 Now, it's, yeah. it's an interesting thing that I don't think people understand when it comes to actually how film works in the business. And had DVD kind of died by the time Parasomnia came out? Yeah, that was starting, that was starting to wane. And yeah. then, uh, you know, 
all the you know all the other markets were drying up and nobody was paying for anything and also what happened was um you know the distributor and their infinite wisdom the first place they distributed the film to was uh brazil which was an incredibly stupid mistake because the next day it was on the internet yeah yeah for free so why is anybody going to pay for it you know right 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 and, and there was a website uh, i don't know if it's around anymore but there was a website that sort of tracked how many how much how many times movies have been downloaded mm -hmm. it was like parasomnia had been downloaded four hundred and fifty thousand times now if i had gotten you know, a couple dollars for every one of those downloads. You would have been in know. the black, sir, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So yeah. There you go. I know. I understand. It was actually successful. It just wasn't financially successful. <laughs> well, you're not the only one with that same story. There's several bigger I'm sure ho I know. Hollywood's lost a lot of money. Um, so you yeah. you also wrote a couple of films, and if you don't mind me asking about them, uh, Supernova. How how were you right. involved in that? Well, uh, Supernova was really uh, originally called Dead Star, and it uh -huh. was a HR uh, Giger vehicle. Yeah. And um, uh, the premise of it really was that there was a uh, black hole. It was basically um, the pitch for it was it was it was uh, dead calm set in space. Okay. So that was really what it was, and it was and uh, the the uh, the boat it was a spaceship. And it was mm -hmm. sitting on the edge of a black hole, ready to get sucked in. Yeah. And they see this like uh, ship coming towards the, towards our, our rescue vehicle. Yeah. Uh, and on board is this crazy guy who's like got some artifact from alien artifact, and it's, it opens up a portal to another to basically hell. And, so like uh, Event Horizons, similar to that, event right? Event Horizons lifted mercilessly from it. <laughs> it was actually out for a long time and i know that it got you know everyone read it and there was a lot of people who wanted to make dead, uh, dead star but it just didn't happen so that script was kicking around for 10 years oh yeah yeah and uh and it had a lot of good reads a lot of people wanted to make it and uh by the time they got around to making um um uh, whatever it's called <laughs> Event, oh supernova Supernova. Event, yeah. Yes. By the time they got around to making Supernova, the, that script had been mined mercilessly. So. Yeah, it's not a. It, I was wondering how much difference there was. So you were, to, so how close were you to Giger? Did you work with Giger quite a bit? Oh yeah, I spent. Uh, I was very. Giger and I were fairly tight. I mean, I, I spent uh, um, a couple weeks in Zurich working with him on. Oh yeah. On, Do you have a good yeah, story? That was great, yeah. And uh, he was a genius, and he would like start drawings, and and he'd like he had this pad, and he just like keep going, and he'd do more, and I'd have to go stop, stop there, you know, because he'd have like some great idea, you know, yeah. but he'd be like five pages all the way down by the time you could put your finger, you know. Uh -huh. So uh, uh, he was great, and I remember walking around this place. He had a flat; it was basically two flats that he'd taken the wall out, and all the walls were painted black, and he had. Um, all of his paintings. He, he didn't sell his paintings. He kept all his paintings. And mm -hmm. he had, the walls were about, oh, three or four feet thick of just his paintings stacked up against the wall. And I remember walking by one of them, which was this painting of Lee, his former girlfriend, and, you know, which was one of those weird, right. you know, typical Giger paintings. And, um, and I, I noticed some holes in it. I said, I said, Giger, somebody damaged your painting here. And he goes, 
Oh, no, that's why my girlfriend, she blew her plans out. And it, it was true. She shot herself in front of the painting, and he left the bullet holes in the blood on the paintings for the... As part huh. of the that's a terrible but yet fascinating story. Yeah, it, it, he was just a really interesting character, yeah. Yeah, you're a huge Alien fan, correct? I am, yeah. I, I, uh, I was enamored uh, with Giger before Alien because I had... Uh, I was at a science fiction convention. This is probably about 1975. Yeah. And I came across a book on a table called the Necronomicon. Right. And I just, I saw this maybe 76 and I, I and I came across that and I just said, I gotta have this, you know? And I just, I remember going home and just laying on the floor and just pouring through this going, this is, this is insane. I love this stuff. It know? sounds like Dan O'Bannon's story about finding him and then bringing him, you know, later yeah, on. Right. You saw his stuff, you know, you know, God, this is great. So, by the way, he was at a science fiction convention in '75. He's just as nerdy as we are. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> just as nerdy yeah. as we are. Oh, probably yeah. more so. <laughs> um, so, what other projects do you have? Do you have anything coming up? Anything you're working on? Well, I'm working on a couple different projects, um, and there is a certain interest in the mirror, which is a Giger project, which I've had for a long time. Yeah, uh, and that. Uh, we'll be hearing about fairly soon. Uh, and in the meantime, I'm working on a couple other things. I've got uh, uh, some things I really can't talk about. I understand, I, I understand. Yeah. Particularly after uh, Event Horizon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. I'm, I think you should kick Paul Anderson. It's Paul Anderson, right? Paul Thomas, or not Not P.T. Anderson, but, but yeah. yeah, Paul, Paul Anderson. W.S. Paul W.S. Anderson. Resident Evil Paul Anderson. You should <laughs> yeah. kick his ass. We'll find him and we'll, we'll do that for you. But I, I don't, do you have any more questions? Because I want to end on Robbie, if that's okay. Yeah, actually, I think that, and, and that's actually one thing I, I wanted to say. Forbidden Planet, big fan, all of yeah. that. So, I, I, you know, as I read about that, about your fandom of that, I was like, oh, a fellow fan of just classic science fiction. Yeah. But oh, you were I, the I biggest fan because you owned it. I love This Island Earth and right. Forbidden yeah. Planet and War of the Worlds and all that stuff. I actually, other than, most people don't realize, uh, other than Robbie, at one time I had, the world's largest collection on Forbidden Planet. I had virtually everything that there was left on it, except for the miniature spaceship and the and the seven foot spaceship. So yeah. I had uh, everything else. I had all the remaining wardrobe and props and stuff. And so, did you have to fight Bob Burns for all that? We've met Bob before. He's let us touch the King Kong armature. So we're we. Bob never collected Forbidden Planet. Until I actually I gave him some stuff. Yeah, Bob's got an amazing. Collection. He's got an amazing collection. Yeah, it was kind of. If, we'll explain that to our fans later on who he is, and yeah, he's yeah. an interesting guy. But keep going. So anyway, so but Forbidden Planet, yeah, was very important to me as a kid. And I, when I came out to California, I just started coming across stuff, and I started just collecting it, just saying this stuff is too good to wind up in the junkyard. And in fact, some of the stuff, one of the a lot of the stuff I got from MGM. Uh, the day I was getting it from the studio, the I, first thing I asked about was the globe with the spaceship. Uh -huh. And uh, they said, oh, yeah, that was bulldozed yesterday. So They just didn't care. And, you they know, didn't I, care. So I, stuff I, was getting thrown out. So I just I bought a room full of stuff from MGM. And you know. so this had been in the 70s. So real estate was started probably it was too expensive to hold on to the real estate. Right. The back lot was going. Was well, going. they needed a place to put the, the UA building, and, mm -hmm. and I guess to them it was just old junk, you know, so they had the MGM auction, and then even afterwards, they had so much stuff that they had to, like, just start 
bulldozing stuff. So, uh, and unfortunately, they thought Forbidden Planet stuff was the bulldoze stuff. So, which makes so it, I, you, I was fortunate enough to be there saying, "No, I'm taking this home." So, yeah, yeah that's what that's what doesn't make any sense because I I would feel even at that time that people should have known then at least. Like if it had been two years after Forbidden Planet came out, it kind of makes more sense to me. But was, we're talking yeah, about twenty no, years. It's just old junk to them. Yeah. Know? So how did you get Robbie? Well, Robbie actually, I got separately. I got because uh, the guy who uh, there was a guy who bought a whole bunch of stuff from MGM called Jimmy Brucker, and he had a place called Movie World down mm -hmm. in Buena Park, and he opened up uh, basically a museum where he showed a lot of the stuff that he collected. Yeah. And um, one day I get a call, and Robbie was down there. They gave basically the studio gave him Robbie because he bought so much stuff. And once again, they just thought, well, we'll just get rid of it. And mm -hmm. they, they didn't have it at the auction because they felt they were going to maybe do something with Robbie. And then later on, they changed their mind and just decided to give it give it to uh, this guy. And yeah. he had it down there for 10 years. And then finally, uh, he went, decided to close the doors down there. And um, a friend of mine called me up and said, you better get down here because they're selling everything in the place, including Robbie. And I'm sure the... I was in the car before the phone dropped. <laughs> <laughs> of course, right? Here's my check. Take all my money. <laughs> so, you, so uh, did you get the did you get? I'm sorry, the Jeep then, and all the rest of the extra parts. Did he have well, all that stuff? Yeah. What happened was I bought Robbie. Actually, initially I wasn't that interested in getting the Jeep, only because I didn't have a place for it. But the the you know the guys down there said you want the robot, you take the car. So I said okay, fine. But they did you a favor. <laughs> They did me a favor because, you know, in retrospect, you know, and, and even I probably probably six months later after I got Robbie, I said, oh, yeah, this is like, this is totally cool. So, yeah. Uh, and uh, and then they brought and then they brought me the um, the head. They finally found the Twilight Zone head and they brought mm -hmm. that over and stuff. So basically the and the shipping cases, which he came with and the, his control panel and yeah. all of that stuff. It was good that and the shipping cases was the gold because in there were tons of spare parts, new old stock, as they say in the, yeah. the car yeah. and NOS parts. Yeah. And, uh, so they, it was loaded with that kind of stuff and it was a blessing. So after owning him for 40 years, I, and this is probably one of those interview questions that I always hate, but I'm going to ask something similar to it. I mean, that I, I don't know how you let it go. As a someone, I, and you know, I don't have anything, and if you could look through my house, I've been collecting for 20 years myself, since I was, yeah. right before I probably started college, I worked, I worked my way through school, and I had extra money, I bought things, right? So I, it, it's hard for me to imagine getting rid of any of this, much less having that. Well, you know, it was, it was, it was not an easy decision, something I, I've been thinking about for a long time, and I, and I thought to myself, you know, first of all, I'm getting of an age where I have to think about, you know, uh, I could, you know, I could go, <laughs> you know, right. tomorrow, you know, who knows, you know, uh, obviously I'm in good health, but you know, who knows? And, and the, uh, and I really didn't want to leave something like Robbie to my wife to have to deal with or my daughter, you know, yeah, right. and, uh, um, and I thought they wouldn't have the cl clues to what to do with Robbie, you know? And there'd be probably a lot of people who'd be like, like trying to, you know, right. uh, take advantage on it and stuff. So I felt it was probably a, a better decision, you know, and that way Robbie can move on. And 
and and I'd had them for a long time, and I really have gotten my enjoyment out of them. Time for somebody else to to, to enjoy them. So, and and I'd seen him through his rough periods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the drinking and the drugs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, you know, I found him in the back alleyway of Studio City drinking a little light. You know? No, that was better than when he was on his knees, sir. <laughs> but, but yeah, it was it was amazing knowing because, and that's not that I, we know each other, but you know, I met I met you a couple of times. It's like, oh my God, Bill Malone's selling! I couldn't believe it, I, and I was screaming at my wife Christy, and she was trying to understand what the hell I was saying. And, <laughs> and then I, I was like, you remember he meant because, and I want to end on this and is that you actually, the, our first date was house on haunted Hill. <laughs> and we told you this story, whatever, how many of those seven, eight years ago, at least when parasomnia was there in Indianapolis. Uh -huh. And yeah. do you know what the, you, you won't remember this, but you know what you said? Hey. You changed, you were looking at me and you looked at her and went, I'm sorry. <laughs> that was all you said our first date was house on haunted hill i'm so sorry <laughs> so thank you from both of us we appreciate it thanks for all the years of entertainment and thank you for uh enjoying the films and supporting them so oh and we we, we, we will continue to do so yeah. that's one of the reasons we ask what you have coming up we're sincerely interested you mentioned this island Earth, and I know this is completely unrelated. Does anybody have a, the Interocitor? Does Does anybody know what happened to the Interocitor? I think it probably got thrown out because oh. I I, uh, I heard a story that uh, somebody saw the uh, remember the the ball thing with the lights in yeah, it that's yeah. uh, in the spaceship and also on the monitors thing. Somebody mentioned that they were over at Universal and they saw it getting bulldozed. So oh. so. Uh, a perfectly so good interoster laid to waste. There you go, yeah. So, I don't know. That, all that stuff's gone. Oh, Universal, uh, more than any other studio, did not save stuff. But uh, why, why Why? do you think that was just a management kind of I, don't I care? Was, yeah, thing? I think it was just that they, uh, they didn't have the space for it. They felt they didn't want to be, you know, carrying that stuff. So, yeah. they it's, tended to, like, the, like, even their wardrobe, they tended to, like, either give the wardrobe to cost, to Western costumes or, because a lot of their, like, this Island Earth wardrobe wound up Western and um, and all their stuff, really. So, they were, that was their sort of mindset, I think, from the get-go. It's interesting. Isn't, um, it just dawned on me, isn't Young Frankenstein was able to use some of the um, sets for Frankenstein? They used the original set, set yeah. yeah. So it's I'm just glad that lasted that long, because that's what, yeah. given everything yeah, else, he, that's kind he, of amazing. He hung on to all that stuff. Although there's stuff, one piece that I still am looking for, which I don't think Strip Fadden had, and I'm, I won't say what it is, but it's from Frankenstein. Really? Uh, well, this is between show. friends. You can't. You <laughs> yeah. don't trust the. You don't trust the. the, the we assure you, we don't have it. We, yes. <laughs> we, I. As they say at the house, I guarantee that we do not have whatever it is that you're looking for. I just don't want anybody else looking for it. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm sure out there. That's the one thing about the internet. Nothing yeah. is, if dream it up There's or something. There's nobody out there looking for it yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, yeah. That's true. Somebody, somebody somewhere is somebody somewhere in a basement right now, going, "I will find it." Well, I, I don't want to keep you too long. I, I told you an hour is, or as long as you want to talk. Uh, this has been just a privilege. Thank you so much for saying yes to it. Well, thank you, guys. And, and, uh, and, uh, and, and thank you, Haley. 
Oh, waving yeah. at you even though I can't see you. So. That's okay. She's on the back. If you'll hold on for one second, unless you're in a huge hurry, we'll we'll cut off and then we'll we'll thank you one more time. Is that okay? Do you have a second? Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Thanks. This has been Bonehead. I'm Joe Lewis. James Dallas. Chad's out this week. Haley behind the camera. Thank you so much, William Malone. We will talk to you all later. William Malone intro. Here's the sound of sexy night at James's. It's <laughs> not true. Usually it's. <laughs> <laughs> the sound of sexy night at James's. Jesus, all I got twenty dollars. <laughs> all right. Ready? Yes. That's four little Caesar's pizzas. Hot damn! <laughs> <laughs>